like to invite you this afternoon to join me on an adventure. It's 1945 and this event happened in December near the town of Nahamadi, which uh, is in Upper Egypt. And a peasant visited one of apparently 150, 160 caves in the mountainside near Nahamadi to do what he often did, which was to collect very fertile organic soil from the cave and take it home and spread it on the family vegetable plant. And so he was digging in one of these caves and came upon a rather sizable red earthenware pot. And his initial reaction was to leave it just as it was because he was concerned and suspicious of any spirits that there might be associated with this pot. And he was terrified of touching it. But then his greed overwhelmed his caution as visions of treasures and gold, uh, I guess, floated through his mind. So he picked up his shovel and smashed the pot. And out of this pot fell 13 leather-bound volumes of papyrus preserved absolutely in this sealed pot. And so he was very disappointed. Obviously, there was no treasure. And he did, though, take these volumes back to his home and gave them to his mom, who threw them down next to the fire. And she began to use them along with the straw in the fire uh, as a sort of kindling. Well, this is where the story becomes a little bit like Raiders of the Last Ark, because the father of this peasant, whose name was Muhammad Ali al-Saman, had been murdered. And so he and his brother, Muhammad's brother, were on a blood feud with the murderers of their father. And so they went out and found the person who apparently killed the father and killed him and brought him home. And as a way of destroying the evidence of the murder, apparently the two brothers ate the body of the person that they killed, burnt the bones, and thereby destroyed all evidence. Well, then the story gets thicker because the friends of the guy that they'd eaten uh, pledged retribution, and now they were on their way to find these two brothers. So Muhammad was concerned that if the police came, they would find this, this paper there. And so he picked up the papers that were left, but many of them had been used as in the fire, and took them to the local priest and said, you know, I found these ones to give them to you, of course, you know, right away and handed them to the police. And that's the end of what we know about Muhammad. But what happened with the volumes is far more important in the scheme of things. The priest showed them to the local history teacher, who then sent them to the Coptic Museum in Cairo, 
and a brief examination revealed that these were documents of enormous importance, whereupon the uh, mechanisms of international intrigue set in motion, and these things were spirited to America uh, and um, examined, and it was found that what had survived the fireplace in Muhammad's uh, home was the Gnostic Gospels of St. Thomas. Um, and there were all manner of mysteries, but the incredible thing was that th these Gospels were written by this man who is referred to as Judas Thomas, the twin of Jesus. And so there's a lot of debate about whether actually Christ may have had a twin. That's really not as important as the fact that these documents had survived 2,000 years of interference with the words of Christ and were an incredible insight into the teachings of Christ 2,000 years before. And they contain within them references to the New Testament which validate their, authentic and their authenticity. And also there was a Greek translation of the Gnostic Gospels of St. Thomas that unfortunately had been interfered with, but in this way they were able to validate these. And I feel it's, personally it's been really important for me, having come to um, meditation practice 21 years ago, being deeply schooled in Buddhism and had the privilege of doing this practice of insight meditation for a long time and many of the other practices to at the same time be really aware that, as I mentioned earlier, if spiritual practice is to be transformative, it must bring us to that junction where transformation is possible, which is the present moment. And that is the fundamental practice of all of the mystical traditions all over the world. And while it may not be as evident in some of the traditions, I believe if we look carefully and sincerely enough, we must find it. And so I'd like to share with you some of the words of Christ that speak so much to what I believe is the essence of meditation, the immediate, be here now, there's nowhere else to be. If the transformation is to happen, it can only happen in the moment and in the experience of life as it manifests at that juncture. And so Christ says in the Gnostic Gospels of Thomas that were found in 1945, he said, if those who lead you say to you, see the kingdom of God is in heaven, he said, then the birds of heaven will precede you. He even had a sense of humor. And then he said, if they say to you it is in the bottom of the sea, he says, then you can be sure that the fish will precede you to the kingdom of God. But he said, no, the kingdom of God is within you and it is without you now. Right now. And then he goes on to say, but if you do not know yourselves, 
then you are in poverty and you are poverty. And the only way we can truly know ourselves, I believe, is in the sincere examination of life, moment to moment to moment, as it presents itself. There's this wonderful and very famous saying from the Gnostic Gospels, certainly the one that is most known, where Christ said, what you bring forth from within you will save you, and what you don't bring forth from within you will destroy you. And I feel that spiritual practice, meditation practice, if you will, must bring forth all that is there, the beauty, the loveliness, and the difficulty, the shadow, the darkness, for our examination for the light of awareness, and then the transformation becomes a succulent possibility for all of us. This is what the Buddha said, and this is clearly what Christ was saying, even though sometimes the way in which Christianity is presented today really doesn't emphasize this beauty and this immediacy. He says later, he says, cleave a piece of wood and I am there. He says, lift up a stone and you will find me there. I'm immediate, I'm here, I'm ever-present, and the I being the freedom, the possibility, the transformation, here, now, within us. And it was so wonderful on Saturday at the retreat um, in Ahualoa, which was the first retreat that they'd had at this beautiful center, it, it, high up uh, the, the hall and I was standing on the lanai, I don't know if you went out of the meditation hall, and just looked down, and there's this beautiful green mountainside, and this huge lava tube, and this pond with lilies, you know, it's so beautiful, statues of Buddhist, Buddha statues and Kuan Yin, and everybody was doing walking meditation all around, and it was w one of the most beautiful moments, and I was thinking, you know, the question is not what practice are we doing, not are we doing it right. The question is, are we here, are we now, are we enjoying every blessed moment of this wonderful place of silence, or are we lost in confusion and our minds are home and we're missing the beauty and the preciousness of being there together. It was really wonderful. It was really wonderful. And as I say, this, this immediacy must be the emphasis if the practice is to be transformative. In the 13th century, Rumi, the great Sufi poet, um, put it this way, and he certainly had a, had a, you know, a very broad vision of, of the spiritual path. And though he was a Sufi and uh, is associated with the beginnings of the dervishes, he says, the prophets have wondered to themselves, how long should we keep pounding this cold iron? How long do we have to whisper into an empty cage? So don't be timid. Load the ship and set out. No one knows for certain whether the vessel will sink or whether it will reach the harbor. 
Just don't be one of those merchants who won't risk the ocean. This is much more important than losing and making money. This is your connection to God. Think of the fear and the hope that you have about your livelihood. They make you go to work diligently every day. Now consider what the prophets have done. Abraham wore fire for an anklet. Moses spoke to the sea and David molded iron. Solomon rose the, rode the wind. Work in the invisible world, Rumi says, at least as hard as you do in the visible. Be a companion with the prophets, invisibly, so that no one knows. You can't imagine what prophet will come. When one of those generous ones invites you, go into the fire. Go quickly. Don't say, but will it burn me? Will it hurt? Rise. Move around the center as pilgrims wind around the Kaaba, which is the most sacred place in um, Saudi Arabia, the place of pilgrimage, the Kaaba. Being still, being still, is how one clay clod sticks to another in sleep, while movement wakes us up and unlocks new blessings. Such an injunction to kind of seize the moment and be there, be there. It's so easy, and I've certainly seen it in my own experience and have heard it again and again. When one is involved in spiritual practice for any length of time, it's, it's so easy to become, even in the most subtle way, a sort of a technologist. The one becomes an, an, an adept. The one becomes an adept meditator. And therefore, one is considered a senior student or an advanced student. That is such a, 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 a delusion and such a shame because I feel that Unquestionably, the most important thing about spiritual practice is that it be alive, that it be innocent, that it be immediate, and that it be untainted by history if it is to be transformative. And these guys like Rumi and Christ are calling us to an experience of life, of the spiritual life, of whatever practice that we do that makes us vital immediate, uncompromising, and as he says, so beautifully, I mean, I just love that part where, what does he say over here, he says, says um, don't be one of those merchants who won't risk the ocean. This is much more important than losing and making money. This is your connection to God. Think of the fear and hope that you have about your livelihood. They make you go to work diligently every day. So how comfortable are we? How comfortable are we in our spiritual practices? And can we be uncomfortable? And are we willing, as practitioners of the truth, to really go into what St. John of the Cross called the dark night? Are we willing? Or are we 
just doing it in order to feel a little more comfortable, to make life a little more workable. And of course, these are questions we each have to ask ourselves. They seem so important to me. And so on days like Saturday, where we're in this beautiful place, it's very easy for it almost to sort of take on this feeling of, oh my God, you know, this is, this is um, such a blessing, such a beautiful place. And it is, and it is a blessing. And do we use it to go into the fire or do we use it to make ourselves just feel a little better? T.S. Eliot in his four quartets. I'm having a great time because these are all my favorite. Favorite. In his four quartets, which is just the stirring descent into the, the shadow and the hell that must be a part of the spiritual practice if we truly are going to come face to face with the forces of darkness that are there within each of us. You know, our world is as it is only because the world is the collective of, of, of each of us. Are we willing to look, as we did in the practice, as I said, can the energy of anger arise and can we be with it? Can we, can we feel it? Can we, we know it? Can we almost like say, okay, do your worst. I'm willing to be here with you and know you fully so that when the anger arises, we're not a victim of it. We don't react. We don't strike. But we say, okay, I see you now. Okay, let's take tea together and just be with you. Where do I feel it? Where do I feel it in my body? This is meditation. This is spiritual practice. How does anger feel? Well, my head feels tight. My back feels a little constricted. I feel like I want to push away. I want to strike out. Can I feel how painful it is to want to strike out and really feel it with every cell of our body? This is the dark nights. This is the succulence, because if we're willing to feel these forces within us and befriend them, they no longer define us. And then we become, as St. Francis of Assisi said, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Not because God sends down a divine bolt of lightning and says, you will transform love, hatred into love because he was willing to go in, know, understand the workings of these energies. And then you have to be an instrument of love in the world. So, so important. And practice offers us a template, the possibility of going in. When fear arises, Rumi has this, this wonderful thing, if I can find it here. I wasn't going to read it, but he says, you know, he talks about the importance of being willing to, if I can find it. Um, do you know this book, The Illuminated Rumi? I think it's the most beautiful book ever. And yeah, he says, keep walking. This is, this is seems so much about what we're doing, what brings us together. Keep walking though there's no place to get to. Don't try to see through the distances. That's not for human beings. He says, 
move within, but don't move the way fear makes you move. Today, like every other day, we wake up empty and frightened. Don't open the door to the study and begin reading. He says, take down a musical instrument. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. And I believe that for us to truly kneel and quit and kiss the ground. And as he says, let the beauty we love be what we do. There's only one way to do it, and that's to do it wholeheartedly. And the only way that we can worship wholeheartedly is to be present. And so these practices, hopefully, are bringing us to an experience of life where our practice is let the beauty we love be what we do, because we're present moment to moment. And even in the experience of fear and anger, I'm sure you've all experienced, as I have done, there is a beauty and there is a love in that capacity to be present with what was formerly so difficult to just be there. And that is the lotus in the fire, that we can be present with the greatest fears and just be there. Not that we are Pollyannas and saying, oh, this fear is beautiful and lovely and a blessing. No, but when it comes up, that's the practice. Can we be there? There are hundreds of ways, as he says, to kneel and kiss the ground. So T.S. Eliot, in his Four Quartets, also speaks about the only way the the only way that the journey is transformative is the immediate, is to be in the immediate, to be in the present. And the way he begins the four quartets is so evocative of this. He says, he says, time present. This is the first of the, of the quartets, which is um, Bernd Norden. He says, time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable, and what might have been is an, is an abstraction remaining a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation. What might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. And then he says, footfalls echo in the memory down the passage which we did not take towards the door we never opened into the rose garden. And then he, he goes on, which I, I shan't read um, today, but the image of the rose is the image of enlightenment, of, of awakening, of flowering, of blossoming, the rose. Shiraz in Iran, where I lived for many years, well, many, four years, is the city of roses. It's a beautiful, beautiful place when the roses are in bloom. It's usually a dusty, really dirty 
place in the southern desert near um, the Afghanistan border, but twice a year when the roses bloom, the city is transformed into a place of such beauty and such color. It's a, a place where the most exquisite rose water available anywhere in the world is apparently made, and it's the rose water that flavors so many of the incredible desserts and cakes and, and um, uh, I'm thinking of the stuff called gaz that the Iranians make. It's almost like a, um, a marshmallow, but a marshmallow, you know, it's not like a marshmallow, but it's white and it's filled with pistachio nuts. And this, and the essence of it is rose water, and it's the most delicious stuff you've ever tasted. Totally sugar, the whole thing is sugar. Well, the beloved child of Shiraz is Hafiz, and Hafiz uh, is of the century after um, Rumi, the 14th century. And he was, you know, as I've become more familiar with his poetry and with the poetry of Rumi, Hafiz, too, was a child of enormous love and utter simplicity utter simplicity, and all he wanted to do was to gather all of us into his heart and just reveal to us the beauty and the love that we are and how important it is that we be present and alive to the miracle of life. He says, I reign because your meadows call for God. I weave light into words so that when your mind holds them, your eyes will relinquish their sadness. Turn bright, a little brighter, giving to us the way a candle does to the dark. I have wrapped my laughter like a birthday gift and left it beside your bed. I've planted the wisdom in my heart next to every signpost in the sky. A wealthy man often becomes eccentric, a divine crazed soul is transformed into infinite generosity, tying gold sacks of gratuity to the dangling feet of moons and planets, ecstatic mid-air dervishes, and to singing birds. I speak to you because every cell in your body is reaching out and calling for God and wants so much to love. And if the meditation instructions that I offered this morning, I hope were at uh, this morning, um, a, a while back, if I did my job, I hope I offered a vision of a spiritual practice that is inclusive of everything. Yes, we use the breathing and the changing sensations of the breath as a, as a tool uh, for becoming friends with this miracle of what it means to breathe, to be alive as human beings on this planet. And from the place of, of hopefully deeper presence, more mindfulness, more awareness, we then open to every facet of life, 360 degrees, excluding nothing. We're willing to look at every moment of at the energy 
of, of anxiety and of terror. We are willing to feel how it feels to read the poetry of Hafiz and just be stirred. How does the tender, inspired heart feel? To know that too. We're willing to listen to every sound and see if it's possible that we can truly be with the birth and death of sounds as they arise and pass away, with the birth and death of every breath, with the birth and death of smells and tastes, until every cell of our body knows beyond a shadow of doubt that life is so fragile, that life is so precious, that every single flutter of the butterfly's wings is reminding us to be present, to be awake here and now. Because if we're living with any assumption of future, we are living in delusion. That's what um, T.S. Eliot said here. He said, he said, and he puts it so beautifully, he says, what might have been is an abstraction, remaining a perpetual possibility only in the world of speculation. What might have been the past history is gone. It's a corpse, it's gone, and we drag it into the future, and then we, uh, we drag it into the present and then cast it into the future with our projections and our dreams, and that's the abstraction. Can we forget this? Can we let go and relinquish this thirst of holding on to the past and this fascination with the future and deliver us to the only juncture where the freedom that we all yearn for is a real possibility. Our birthright, our birthright is only available to us in the present moment. And can we here be a community where we, we hold one another's hands, carry one another's hearts as we stumble towards the juncture where being a real, true, alive human being is a possibility? and the experience of our lives. And what that means also is a willingness to go into the darker recesses of what it means to be born human. The meditation practice is certainly one way of doing that, but we look out at our world today of such chaos. We just look at what's happening on the landscape of Catholicism today and just see what has been going on for so long with these priests and these young boys and just this upheaval of the truth. And yet, what Christ himself said, what we bring forth will save us and what we don't bring forth will destroy us. So what a blessing it is that the soul has opened it's uncomfortable, it's heartbreaking, and yet it is so important, I feel, that we as meditators develop the capacity to be uncomfortable within ourselves so that when we begin to look at what's going on around us, we can be present to that as well, and we don't deflect and deny and avoid it. But do we look at the Catholic landscape with some sense of self-satisfaction I hope not, because personally speaking, if I look at the landscape of Buddhism, it is populated by similar activity. Teachers, men and women in whom students have 
have uh, placed their confidence, have behaved in ways that are appalling. And I believe the only way in which this can be possible, whether it's a Buddhist meditation teacher, whether it's a rabbi in the synagogue, whether it's a Catholic priest in Chicago or in Boston, is when our spiritual practice is not universal, when we are unwilling to look at ourselves 360 degrees without impediment. If the light of our awareness, just the very simple thing that we've been practicing here together, when we are willing to allow that to fall on everything and be that uncomfortable, then I think we are transforming this world. When, when we were last here, we were talking, Morty, about you know what is it that we can do in this world where we're bombing Afghanistan and India and Pakistan at each other's throats and Israel and the Palestinians are doing that. We are transforming the world, but that transformation cannot be complete and absolute unless we are willing to go into ourselves without reservation and see everything that is there and be willing to grapple and it's messy it's messy and i think the spiritual path must be messy when saint john of the cross talked about the dark night of the soul i think he was talking about just how messy it is this willingness to come face to face with what is true and for me one of the ways over the years that i've been blessed to go into whatever has been possible for me, the shadow, as Jung called it, or the darkness, has been with psychotherapy. And I've worked with some amazing therapists that I feel like the meditation practice enabled me to do therapy that wouldn't have been a possibility. It was almost like it loosened up the material and then using the therapy to go in and then the therapy itself freed up areas so that the meditation practice could deepen. And so there are, the, there are these two hands that have been washing themselves. feels like so important that the practice not be limited or myopic, that we have the courage to listen and do exactly what we need to do to be, as Rumi said, someone who can take the musical instrument off the top shelf and not just open books and distract ourselves from life. And so I'm very happy, and um, I hope this is not going to be too much of a shock for my dear friend Trudy here, but I'd like to introduce you to my friend Trudy Goodman, who is my Dharma sister. We've been friends for a very long time. She's here for a week. We've been, we've been doing what Rumi said, you know, don't take down the book, play the musical instrument, let the beauty you love be what we do. Well, We've been out on the reef all week, just like <laughs> dissolving into all the loveliness. But I introduce you to Trudy because not only is she a student of Zen and has been practicing far longer than I have and now a teacher of insight meditation, but she's also a psychotherapist and has, is such an inspiration for me about the integration of psychotherapy and Buddhism. And my words are not really as eloquent as hers would be. And so, as I close this, I'd like to ask Trudy to be willing to join me so that perhaps in our conversation, we can just explore a little together. How do we go into the dark places? Why is it that, that we have 
people who are good people behaving in ways that can be appalling. And what can our response be to that? And how can we support one another to be true? So does that sound like a little bit of fun here? Mm-hmm. More fun than Nachamadi even, eh? <laughs> <laughs> but what I'd like to do is end with this wonderful man, T.S. Eliot. And we started at Burnt Norton, the, the first lines of Burnt Norton. And I'd like to just invite you to really take in how he brought this all to a culmination after going into the darkness and struggling and being bereft, almost suicidal on this journey. He ends the, the final quartet, which is the dry salvages. The last one, I think it is that I want to be sure. No, it's not. It's Little Gidding, I thought it was. Little Gidding. This is how he, he says, and these words have been so inspiring for me. He says, we shall, we shall not cease from exploration. And the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Through the unknown remembered gate when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning. At the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall, and the children in the apple tree, not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard, in the stillness between two waves of the sea. A condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. When the tongues of flame are enfolded into the crown knot of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. May we sit together for a few moments, please. other day we wake up empty and frightened. Don't open the door to the study or begin reading. Take down a musical instrument. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. Thank you.
so my hope and prayer is that I've not put my friendship with Judy in jeopardy by springing this one on her. <laughs> what is it? Should I always join you in answering a question? Yeah, uh, come sit next to me and let's have some fun. Oh, okay. <laughs> See, I can do it from here, Calvin. Okay, you want to do it from there? Would you prefer to yeah. do that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm, I mean, you know, we're a family, so it's not like a, a big formal I'm thing. I'm just going to, actually, I'm going to move because I can't yeah. see who's behind Great. me. So that, yeah. Do you want to sit there? Sure. Uh. Oh. Can I sit in your chair? And then I'm going to get my Should we take a, a minute just to stretch? Maybe like two or three minutes. There's water down the passage. Let's keep the silence and the energy of this incredible time in this beautiful room and what we've created. And I'll ring the gong in a minute or two and let's get together. I even have Karen's lovely watch here so that I can time it. Psychotherapy 
before they could meditate. <laughs> but you know, that was the atmosphere about it. Um, so it was hard in those days to make the decision to go into therapy because you were really discouraged from it. And, uh, and I remember speaking at, at, then I was a Zen student, speaking at the Zen Center about the, um, the synergy, the way that my therapy and my Zazen were working together. And, you know, that was just, uh, that was just something that wasn't done at that time. But I think the way to know is if you've been practicing meditation, and there are, thing, there are things that just come up recurringly that are troubling and painful, and you've been a sincere practitioner, and it just hasn't helped. Uh, I don't, I guess I don't see it as such a huge decision to get some help um, with things because I know, and this is linked to the places that scare us, I know that um, Gavin didn't use these words, but when he was talking about the priests, and of course the priests are getting attention now, but it has also been ministers and rabbis and Buddhist teachers, you know, this is not something that the priests have a monopoly on, but any area that you leave out of your practice, any area that you leave out of your prayer life or your spiritual life, uh, winds up co-opting it and taking it over in ways that are outside of our awareness most often. This is why it's important to have a teacher, a spiritual friend, somebody that you um, talk to about your life and what's happening in your meditation. In your life, meditation is just a slice of life. So, the how to move into those areas that are scary. that which is painful. That's the survival mechanism. And or we push it, you know, we either pull back or we push away and get aggressive with it. Um, and you see both out on the reef. You know, you see the creatures that just pull and shrink away under the coral. And then you see the eel that comes out of its cave and <laughs> bears its, <laughs> its teeth and you know you And see, we pull back. <laughs> 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 you know, you see both strategies for dealing with what's frightening. Um, and like most of this practice, it is really, uh, we have a word, it's counterintuitive. It goes against your common sense to sort of go there. Um, this is an analogy that's very weird to use in Hawaii, probably, but have any of you ever gone skiing? <laughs> okay. <laughs> when you ski and you learn to ski, you realize that everything in your body wants to hug the mountain and stay close to the ground. And you're taught that you have to lean away from the mountain. That's out into space. You know, that's down the mountain. But the fact of the matter is, if you hug the mountain and kind of cling to that security, your skis slip out from under you downhill and you fall. 
And if you can find the courage to lean out into space, you actually stay balanced and don't fall. Mm. And that's what I think this is like, this question of moving into the areas that we don't want to or that we would instinctively, there's nothing wrong with it, we would instinctively avoid. So much of this practice is kind of going against the current and swimming upstream of what the culture teaches us and what we've learned. I mean, it's so much like those words of Jesus where he says, what we bring forth will save us. And what we don't bring forth from within us will destroy us. I really appreciated hearing that. You know, I was brought up Jewish, and so I didn't get a lot of exposure to Jesus, to say the least. And I really appreciated hearing that teaching, because that's another way of saying, yeah, what you don't pay attention to or what you keep out of your practice. Mm. Because it's done deliberately sometimes, too. Well, this doesn't really matter, you know. I'll just do this one little thing, and I'll just do it over and over on the side, and it doesn't really have to do with my meditation or my spiritual life. But it does. It does. Everything does. And to me, this is a really encouraging teaching. You know, it's not, a, it's not like, oh my gosh, I'll never be able to be mindful of, any, of everything. No, we aren't mindful every moment. Nobody is. But it's encouraging to know that there's nothing left out. It's like what, I can't remember which, you read so many beautiful things, but the one about, you know, God is right here. Maybe that was just your words, but it's encouraging to know that it's not someone else. Yeah. Isn't it? It is to me, because the mind's tendency is to imagine an awakening or enlightenment or God is somewhere else, some other moment. Maybe later when we're more spiritually evolved, you know, some other place, maybe in a church or temple or somewhere, anywhere. But could it be me? I have a friend, big Buddhist. Um, I mean, very prominent. <laughs> and she recently attended a retreat where she was led to understand that her understanding was actually quite good. And she spoke about the moment, and she said, I felt like Groucho Marx. If it's, you know, if I understand, I don't want to be part of any, what is it, any club that would accept me. <laughs> yeah. I can, well, you remember, what would he say? Exactly. But the idea was, she couldn't accept, you know, that her understanding, yeah, right here, right now, is really not. And that it, it didn't make the wisdom or the understanding any less, just because she had it. I'm Morty. You know, I, I find one of my best teachers is when I get my buttons pushed. I mean, I can kind of drift along thinking pretty highly of myself, <laughs> ordinarily. But then something comes along where, why, did, why was I such a schmuck that I reacted that way to what just happened? You know, if I could catch it just in retrospect, if I could be conscious enough to recognize that I was just unconscious, you know, in that last second, then I could, then I could work on that, then I could say, well, where is that? You know, I could try, kind of 
try and track it down. And ordinarily, uh, in meditation, I kind of sit blank-minded, you know. I, I, but, but in those instances where life feeds, feeds back to me, you know, so, uh, that place where I'm blind or shows me that, that area where I've suddenly done something unconsciously, and that wasn't, that wasn't very nice, well, you know. And then the ability to apologize right after it is a, is a kind of cathartic act, you know. Hey, I'm sorry, man, I, I did that. I, I recognize, man, I did a terrible thing to you the other night when I jumped on you for saying something. So, so, so those instances, if you could catch them, of where you react irrationally or you react kind of not up to the standard that you think of yourself as up to, you got to, you know, that's a place where you can dig in and work a little on that, on that piece of territory that caused that, you know, caused that strangeness to occur. Yeah, it seems like like that's a great statement, um, and it sheds lights on on the two facets that we've been talking about. One is the practice in its unfolding gifts us with a, a, an ever increasingly immediate choice of seeing the arising of these impulses and not being governed by them. And so in that willingness, that's why, you know, in the instructions are always at least once. Today I did it once. Sometimes I do it many times. The willingness to begin again and again and again is the heart of meditation practice. And I believe that it is, that just that is the, one of the greatest gifts we can give ourselves because just in being willing to begin again and again, we get closer and closer to the impulse to do as you're saying so that we experience increasingly in our lives that blessed uh, sacred landscape where something arises and we can say, I see you, and we're not on automatic, you know? But then it's like sometimes these complexes are so loaded and so charged, you know, people with a vitriolic, like, rage that feels like it's uncontrollable, then w would you say that that would perhaps be something that could benefit from a psychological sort of intervention? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's what Maury's talking about, but yeah. I oh, yeah, no, I think this, this man should be in therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I'm pulling your leg, of course. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think there's a humility, don't you think, in being able to know that, I mean, I, I, you know, I remember like that Rinpoche, you know, I mean, when I first heard the Dharma, I just knew that that was all I needed that, you know, my faith was absolute and this practice would do everything. And it was kind of hard for me to get over that hump. And it was, you know, I was humbled to realize that this thing I loved so much, not that it was deficient, but that it was actually given 
the conditioning and the circumstances of my life that I needed help, you know, had to reach out. See, I guess I don't, I don't make any more, I mean, this is after, you know, umpty umpty years of Dharma practice, and then I worked as a therapist for um, almost 25 years, too. Uh, I don't make such a distinction anymore, because what I was, you know, maybe awkwardly trying to say in that first talk, um, which I gave, I think it was two years into my meditation practice and toward the end of my therapy, was just ending, um, was I was really looking at the ways in which working with your own mind, I mean, it's just one mind, it's one heart, and I was really looking at some of the ways in which working on myself in therapy was just so similar to working in the meditation. The question of same or different is no longer so interesting to me as how can the contributions of each be a resource to the other. And I really believe that some of the ways and skills of working in psychotherapy can be a resource to help the flowering of the Buddhist meditation. And just as you know, the way that Buddhism has survived is by being able to go into different cultures and absorb and integrate what that culture has to offer. Offer, you know, in India it was one way, and in China it became you know, infused with Taoism and became Zen, and it, you know it just. And here, I really believe we have uh, that Western psychology has some great discoveries to offer, and that it isn't either or. And more and more, I think. Meditation is to grow the whole person, not just the meditator, because obviously being on the cushion, as much as it can be difficult and challenging, is the easy part compared to getting up and interacting with our families and our supposed loved ones. <laughs> I mean, aren't they the ones that... It's safer on the cushion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's important to have that safety and that refuge slow down and be able to see things. But then what do we do with what we see? That's where the rubber really meets the road. So um, I guess maybe maybe because you're a guy, having therapy meant more like caving in and needing help. Than well, do you know what it was? It was know. like the way meditation instructions were presented, I think more at that time than they are today, was like, don't get involved in the story, you know? Don't, you know, and so it's almost like, it was almost like, yeah. do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. That's definitely. where it came from. Yeah, definitely. And that's where the ignorance about what therapy is on the part of the teachers came from, too. The idea that all you are doing is kind of celebrating about your past and your story and getting mad at your parents. And I mean, you know, from the Tibetan culture where your parents are revered for the precious human birth that they offered to you it was insanity. You know, they couldn't understand it at all. Um, but good therapy isn't that. And good therapy is present tense and involves a whole being. Yeah, you know, my experience is that I really love the meditation. I've done some 30 days and quite a few tens, and I find that a lot of the stuff comes up, like childhood nightmares and things like that, and it really cleanses in the meditation. But my feeling is that there is such
each other's sort of freeness to the ego. You're just trying to get out of being this, this nasty stuff. And so I find that the therapist, the, normally I can't afford a therapist, but at my college we had this wonderful old elderly man who was just so experienced and wise and so soft-spoken and gentle, but piercing. And he meditated also, not for Bhashana, but and he would ask questions. See, that's what was so helpful, to question. Yeah. Force my ego go, ooh, ooh, you know, it was just like yucky stuff. And then he would say, what about your father and his pattern, you know? And I'd go, okay, I've heard this from a lot of other little therapist friends and things. Let's go for it. And so he just helped me to see this pattern. And then he says, well, how do you feel about your dad right now? So he brought it into the present. How are things right now with your dad? Okay, then I had to go into all that. And then finally up shot of it was, I wrote this beautiful long letter to my dad just saying, I felt hurt when you said you wish you hadn't brought me into the world. All this yucky stuff. And yet it was brought it all so that we now are communicating and we visited one another for the first time in like long time. He came to visit and I visited him, his wife, who was really sweet too. And uh, anyway, things really changed because of this therapist. Now, in my meditation, it might have, the idea might have come up eventually, but the, the therapist pierces the ego quick. There's like, just, it's like a pinpoint. And then the meditation, I was upping, doing more meditation. So it gave me more time to really reflect on what this guy said and also just clear out let the sankara come and just being willing to just face this non-ego, you know, and work on it. So I find both very helpful. And I kept asking because my tradition is Goenka. And so they're very strict to the whole thing, which I do actually love. For me, it's perfect because it just, it, it just works well. But I'm loving um, the other teachers now, like you and Eric and different ones that are just this long free kind of thing. But for the actual retreats, I love this strict 12 hours. For me, it just works great. But um, the therapy, I really do, do feel how the place. And I keep asking the question, they say, well, it's going to come up meditation. And that is true. In its own time, I feel everything will. But the piercing questions on the ego is, is good to have earlier. And that just forces me to work hard. Mm -hmm. so I like it. If I could afford a therapist right now, I would go today. <laughs> the other piece you brought forward so beautifully is about relationship, yeah. which does not happen in meditation. I mean, the therapist asked the question um, and encouraged you to heal that relationship. Mm -hmm. And yes, it might have come up eventually, but it might not have, too. Well, I feel it will eventually, this lifetime or the next. Sooner or later, with the meditation, it is all going to get purged, but... Yeah, but, you know, I guess my feeling about that is, like, parents, well, we all die, but parents maybe are a little more likely, and... Animals, it's not... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Not my some other lifetime. Here, she's 80, we're living together now, and it's just a wonderful... It was in my 30 days that I knew. In my first 30 day, I knew that I was willing to come and help. And in my second 30 day in India, I knew that I wanted to. 
She looks like she gets up to a lot of mischief. I just love to hold, and you're very welcome to hold it. Here we go. It comes from China. It's from a volcano in China. I was told what it's called, and I've forgotten. And it is just very comforting to me. It is very beautiful. Isn't it beautiful? Yeah. Is it natural? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, I think it's been polished. Or tumbled. Yeah, something like that. But yeah, it comes out of. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. It seems like there's some way the heat changes the color. Huh. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Well, I, the reason I was curious is because I seem to have an affinity for rocks. Oh. And uh, I just love having them around, um, you know, the geodes and uh, some of the, um, you know, quartz also. And um, I, I love working, you know, with jewelry, with, you know, the natural stones, well, and crystal, too. And, you know, it's sort of like a zen thing. <laughs> but um, I don't know, I just, I just, uh, I 
That's a really good question, and I think actually both are true in the sense that uh, if a therapist is skilled and intuitive and empathic, they can do what the Tibetans call exchanging self for other, really no matter who you are. Um, some of that has to do with life experience, and some of it just has to do with their skill and who they happen to be. Um, but after a certain point, my experience is I can almost become almost anybody, and almost. And um, so, so in some sense, it might be a hesitation or lack of trust in that. It's also true that nobody can completely understand what they haven't experienced. They can listen, they can become it to some extent, but I always say I haven't experienced that. You know, there is that point where it stops. But it doesn't mean that they can't help you. And also sometimes the difference helps to see. Just like the sameness helps to see. Like, I will intuitively know certain things because we have so much sameness. But the difference can also help to see. Specifically, like the spiritual path, it's just such a different view of the mind. If someone is just doesn't have experience with that, can they really relate to you and really help you other than just in the personality stuff if they don't no. have experience with something themselves? No, not really. Conceptually, they might know. But you see, I'm not sure that person has to be everything for you. Like, why? I'm not asking you to tell me this, but the question is, why do you want the therapy? Do you want the therapy because there are some personal personality issues that are actually blocking you from flowering the way you uh, might in your life? And that could be flowering in your spiritual practice, just like flowering at home in your relationship or uh, with your work, whatever it might be. I'm not sure. I, I tend to feel that it's all um, isomorphic. In other words, that if you help one area, all the areas benefit. So let's say you're feeling frustrated or blocked in your work. I don't know you. This is pure speculation. If you were to you know, dissolve whatever inhibition is preventing you from flowering in that area, that's going to affect everything in your life. And maybe you have a meditation teacher who understands the mind and heart and how you're, how you conceive of that inconceivableness. And maybe your therapist really doesn't. But I don't think one person has to be everything for us. In fact, I think it's much better if they're not a lot of power to have in someone's life. I don't like being people's meditation teacher. I won't be their therapist and their meditation teacher. Yeah. It's a quarter to four. And no, and I just wanted to acknowledge that. I think we, you know, let's, does it feel okay to do another five minutes of discussion and then we stretch and then we close? Is that okay?
fortunate in being able to get in on the phone book and make a phone call and connect with the person who, who did meditation. That's <laughs> very unusual and fortunate. Well, you know, we prayed a little bit ahead of time. Yeah. And uh, mm. there were a couple other calls and didn't connect and didn't, you know, this and that. And uh, so, but this was the one to connect with. But I didn't really know her. But I did go in and uh, we talked Nice to hear somebody else's voice. <laughs> Maybe nicer for you. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Well, on behalf of yeah, thank you. Thank, thank you. you, thank you for inviting me. Mm -hmm. Well, I also like that you said not one person, because I remember in my family that that was another thing. It was going to several different people because each had something to offer, and other people wanted to say that not it was too much for any one person. I think there's this longing to find the person in all of our lives, whether it's a soulmate or you know the teacher or the therapist who will get it. It's like, but I don't think that's the way it is. Actually, that's the part of it too. Is I also thought there wasn't anybody who understood me or could talk to me. There's also a very unknown. 
nobody was around. Both sides of that going on at different times. Also, there's a there's a little there's some part of human uh, makeup that makes us good game players, and we enter into situations and become a game player in the situation we enter. So when we're meditation people, there's a game involved in being a meditator. There's a game involved in being a therapist. There's a game involved in being a person subject to therapy. And each time, as you go into it deeper, you become a better game player at it. So, and that's kind of a little blocking the freshness that you talk of when you talk about entering with the innocence. Any game extended for a long period of time, the innocence is partly lost in, in the idea of being a good person under therapy or a good therapist or a good medic. So life itself has to present, continuously try and get involved, pick up the violin or do something that's challenging as something other than what you channel yourself into, so, so that you get surprised by life and it that's where that re revelation takes place. Otherwise, you can really master your shit pretty good, and, and there ain't no revelations left in your in your ability to master it. So somewhere you got to get into a situation in which you're really uncomfortable, and keep those kind of situations part of your life. Keep that adventure going, and don't get become simply a master at these various games that that are offered for you to play important feature, you know, as you get older especially, you kind of can really can become a, man, a real master when, you, when you're an older guy, you know. Beautiful. Morty sounds like you're ready to try skydiving. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I just writing an auto, I'm writing my autobiography, so I'm, I've been six months into reconstructing my life and putting it down on paper and seeing what it what it means and that and that's a kind of bit of a challenge for me. I mean that's uncomfortable, comfortable. What do I do with this? You know, how do I recall it? What what so each time if I could do you know, if I could keep making <coughs> something interesting and not get used to it and not be a master game player, right. whatever game I'm in, that will reveal to me parts of me that uh, that otherwise I'm good at <laughs> keeping keeping aside. Yeah. Not to get too comfortable. Right. Um how would it be if we is anybody like really pressed for time? Like, if we went five minutes over, would that be okay? Just so that we we don't rush. Is that okay? Seven minutes? Do we have seven minutes? <laughs> don't push it, Jim. No. For, okay. Okay. So I hear eight. <laughs> no. <laughs> seven. Okay. So um, let's take a minute or two and. They will come together for a closing. Is that okay?
like to again acknowledge with certainly my, and I know I can speak collectively, our gratitude to Karen and Morty for the great blessing and privilege of being in this really beautiful place. Thank you. I also would like to let you know that Lorraine, who's one of the organizers of events, is in California with her family. I spoke to her the other day. She sends love. And Susie Dorian is at a meeting uh, this afternoon here. And Judy Rodman, who's often here, is with her cat who's dying this afternoon. So three great hearts who would like to be here and are not here. And would also like to acknowledge Joan, who helps make things happen. And in the spirit of making things happen, uh, to let you know that the next retreat is July 20th, I believe. It's Saturday. I hope that's correct. And I think the next gathering here is 20th, takeaway 7 is 13th, 12th. Is that right? I think it's the 12th of July is our next Friday gathering. My name is Joan, and uh, as you know, the uh, Dharma is taught without um, uh, without cost or uh, really uh, anything expected in return. And um, um, and what a wonderful work and uh, and privilege for us to experience the teaching. I. Um, would like to ask you uh, today if, uh, uh, if uh, possible, if you could uh, contribute to the dana or the offering for the teaching, uh, and, and that is for uh, the uh, so that Gavin can, you know, live and have, you know, what he needs in his life. So anything that you would be able to give uh, would be there is a sitting group that meets on Tuesday afternoon, Tuesday or Thursday? Thursday? Thursday. Thursday afternoon and evening. Captain Cook. I'll speak to Anne. Is that if anybody wants more information about that? Uh, there we go. And one more thing. Mm. I do have the list of volunteers. Awesome. Help is needed for all sorts of little things. And I've got a list that you could even do a little part of it. So maybe I'll just put it out. Yeah. If you'd like. Thank you. Yeah. 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 That's our tactic is if there are people just do little things, like just somebody who do the flyer and somebody who do that, just to help the retreats, like be there a little earlier to do the registration, bring the flowers to the retreat, just as a way of getting it to happen. So, so the last one you said, Alua Loa, full day? Alua Loa, full day. Full day. Full day. Yeah. Is that at the ecology center? No. It's a brand new place. It's, it's above Texas Dragon. It's up a little bit. No, it's about. More, more probably. 
Yeah, and it's not, no, it's actually, yeah, I guess. It's not far from Richard. It's a couple of miles uh, up the mountain from Texas, yes. right? Yeah. Texas. Is it like Colombo? Colombo? No, not too far. Yeah. Not quite that far. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, yeah. Well, how about a little bit of loving kindness to send us on our way? Eh? Oh, <laughs> so much gratitude. And Anne was one of the angels who cooked food for me. Aww. She must put a lot of fire in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, really, I tell you. <laughs> a lot of oomph, especially in those shepherd's pies. <laughs> Yeah, it was a team effort. Yeah, <laughs> so much love. Okay. I always love to remember the words of the Buddha when he said that if we looked all over the world, we'd not find anyone more deserving of our love and our kindness and our compassion than ourselves. So in that spirit, we begin this meditation, this closing meditation on loving kindness by holding ourselves with loving kindness, extending loving kindness to ourselves, allowing my words to echo within you. May I be happy just the way I am. And may I be peaceful with whatever it is that is occurring within me and around me. May I know equanimity in my life. May I be safe and protected. And may I love myself completely. limit. So keep breathing, just resting in whatever feeling there may be and sometimes there's loving kindness and sometimes it's not the season. That's okay. Just the willingness to hold ourselves in love is all that's needed. May I be happy and peaceful. May I be filled with love and kindness and compassion. May I be free of suffering and all the causes of suffering. May I love myself completely. Extending outward to one another to Lorraine, to Susie, to Judy, to all who would love to have been here and couldn't. May we all be happy and peaceful. May we be filled with love and kindness and compassion. May we all be freed from suffering and all the very many causes of suffering. 
beneath the circle of love. And then widening the circle even more to include all who live on this beloved island of ours, including the creatures of the ocean, those that fly in the air, all the beings of the ground, human beings, other beings, to the rocks, to the trees, to all the faces of nature on this island and all the islands of Hawaii. May all beings here on these beloved islands be happy and peaceful and filled with love and kindness and aloha. And may all of us be free from suffering and all the causes of suffering. Extending loving kindness. And then I invite you to open this great heart of loving kindness that we all share to include all beings everywhere, all over this world. Human beings, the other beings. May all beings everywhere without exception, be happy and peaceful. The women, the children, the men of Afghanistan and Palestine, Israel, India, Pakistan, may all beings be peaceful, including those in prison, those suffering, those who are sick everywhere, those who are being born and those who are dying. May all beings be filled with love and kindness, compassion and contentment. Extending love and kindness to those creatures on the edge of extinction the plants and the trees that are dying away, to our planet that is suffering so much. May all beings everywhere be happy and peaceful, filled with love and kindness and compassion. And may all of us be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. Just resting in this great heart of compassion, holding our world, holding ourselves, holding one another. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.